But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey, welcome back to episode 36 of the Reach podcast. I hope you've had a lovely two weeks since our last podcast episode. Today I'm chatting to Anna Beery, who is a registered dietitian at Ohio State working in radiation oncology. The majority of patients that Anna sees are head and neck cancer patients and survivors. And it's a really important issue and kind of the scope of the episode we're talking about is nutrition and cancer care with a specific emphasis on head and neck cancer. Um, this is a, a cancer site or cancer population that I'm becoming more fascinated by um, as a result of the treatment that they get both surgically and uh, radiation and the challenges with radiation to this specific region. So head and neck typically get radiation to the head and neck. And with that, there's a ton of issues and pain and difficulty swallowing, taste changes, things like that, where cancer cachexia and the loss of both body weight and lean body mass or muscle mass is a real big problem in this population. So I met Anna a few months ago talking about potential study designs and looking at how resistance exercise might be able to attenuate some of this loss in lean body mass. But anyway, we were kind of got talking about the idea that the, the side effects of radiation typically take about two to three weeks to set in. So I was kind of going, well, if we know that the weight loss can be as pronounced as it is with 20, 30 pounds in as little as six weeks. Is there a potential role to maybe put them in a caloric surplus prior to the kind of onset of those uh, side effects of, of radiation and maybe that kind of the onset of weight loss? So maybe there's a kind of a therapeutic role for, for putting them in this excess um, caloric intake to where maybe they put on five, six, seven pounds in that two to three week period to hopefully buffer some of the weight loss. And we also talk about a lot of different things in relation to Anna's role in cancer care and, and the appreciation for registered dietitians in this population. And then kind of some nuanced things like working with feeding tubes and how they decide the, the composition of nutrition that they give through these feeding tubes. But anyway, I'll, I'll shut up talking and let you get to the show. So I hope you've enjoyed the chat. And if you can, if you haven't done so yet, do us a favor and jump onto iTunes and leave me a, a subscribe or a review and all that good stuff. And uh, and otherwise, enjoy the show and we'll speak soon. Uh, but yeah, like I said, I really do appreciate you coming over. So uh, we're going to talk about some some really interesting stuff and some important stuff to do with, uh, with nutrition and cancer care today. But let's start with just kind of your background and, and your role as an RD, how you got into it, and what you're doing right now. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, so I actually have been a dietitian for almost 10 years. Um, <clears throat> I kind of started my career in, um, in a smaller hospital in southern Ohio, but a lot of inpatient type of work. So I thought I always wanted to do, like, critical care, um, ICU, I loved that, 
and nutrition support type of thing. Um, and then, so I did that, I mean, for years, but we started to actually see more, of course, cancer patients, but definitely the head and neck cancer patients. Um, they would come in for surgery. Um, they would get feeding tubes. Um, and I found myself really like liking kind of getting to know those patients and then being able to like help them when they went home and because this was such like a new life and a new normal for them so I I felt myself really liking that part of it like helping them at home helping them with the feeding tube like food takes on a whole new meeting at that point so um and then at the hospital, they opened a cancer center. So I, like, totally volunteered. and <laughs> I'm like, I, w- I will do that. So it just started, I mean, a couple days a week. So then I would see some outpatient. It was a lot of head and neck, but not all, you yeah. know, head and neck. But I would see a couple days a week outpatient, and then I would still see them inpatient, sometimes the same patients I would get to follow. Um, so I, I just loved it. I, would, I loved getting to know them. And, like, I just felt like I could really help yeah. them at home and – gain weight or maintain their weight or just day to day like how this is your new life like how you know how can you make it work kind of thing so how are they different from who else did you see in the ICU um I mean a lot of just kind of medical things you know I mean respiratory failure COPD type of things surgeries but not necessarily cancer um a lot of you know ventilated patients that would need feeding tubes in their nose or their mouth or um so I I liked the nutrition support part of it um but I just found myself really liking getting to know the actual the patients themselves and then kind of feeling like I could really help them so I um have been I mean I think I worked there for five years but I was looking I mean James wasn't even a thing at the time but it was like a dream of mine I knew that it was going to be there and I thought it wasn't a thing as in it wasn't Start. Well, I guess the new the new James yeah, wasn't it's beautiful. Isn't it? <laughs> it wasn't built yet, but it was in the work. So I how long ago was that? What five years? So four years ago, two thousand. And it's that new, huh? That's crazy. The big building. Two, it's I'm trying to think. Three years ago, I think is when we first. It might have been because it might have been when I just got ago. here. Yeah. Um, and then I still had some contacts here because I I did my undergrad. Um, at Ohio State so I knew they had an outpatient oncology position um, and I'm just I was so happy that I was able to to be back here and um, really I mean that's kind of been what I've done I mean I see I'm in radiation oncology so I can I see a lot of a lot of head and neck you know 95% probably head and neck cancers but other cancers as well but I really like that that population that's going to be a dream job for you huh going from smaller university in southern ohio to the james or the way yes yeah it really it really is a dream what was that like getting a call to be you're going to be at the james delivering cancer care i cried (laughs) (laughs) i was so happy i just cried it was yeah it and like as i started out to be a dietitian i think it was the best place to start for me because then I found out how much I really um, liked cancer patients and working with them so it was the perfect job to start with um, but yeah I love it. So why do you only or why is the majority of patients you see in Radonk uh, head and neck? 
Um, with radiation itself, just where the radiation is in the head and neck area, they have the most side effects related to eating. Right. Um, so I spend most of my time with those patients. So you're then, you'd be an RD specific to Radonc, and then there's other RDs throughout. Yes. Well, do, let's do this. Give us a picture of the whole registered dietitian team in mm-hmm. the James. So we have dietitians. Um, we have a dietitian at Morehouse, Martha Morehouse. Um, we have a dietitian in survivorship with James Care for Life. We have um, dietitian at the Brain and Spine Hospital. We have a dietitian on the fifth floor in medical um, oncology and hemonc. We have dietitians in almost every clinic. So. And then radiation, we see a lot of different cancer yeah. patients, but a lot of them have their own kind of clinics outside of that too. It's just, and it's not just myself, we have two other dietitians that work with head and neck cancer patients because we have we have a lot of them coming through the James every day and then they need a lot of help. So how often does that whole team, or does it ever get together and say, this is the state of nutrition in Ohio State's cancer care? Mm-hmm. So our outpatient James dietitians, we get together every month, um, but we are in contact all the time, um, phone, text, email, um, because we get new things every day that we can't, you know, sometimes we can't keep up with keep up with the latest and greatest, and we have to contact each other and, you know, say, have you heard of this, have you, that kind yeah. of thing. So. Yeah, especially with the, the kind of ever-evolving treatments, too, and working with different cancer types and sites and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You're always on your toes. It's got to be good to have that. I mean, you have a team that you can just go, you know, I've got this patient there experiencing this. What do mm-hmm, I do? Mm-hmm. And we have quite a few who are certified oncology specialists. Um, I am not yet. But, <laughs> You're on the um, way. I am. It's, real, it's a hard test. Yeah. But, I mean, we have the smartest dietitians. Um, so I am not yet. But hopefully one day I have just three little kids at home so it's hard to study <laughs> i'd imagine that test is a little bit um i mean it's it's nutrition centered around cancer care so you got to know the pathophysiology of different treatments and the disease and all that mm-hmm. type of stuff and then how a lot of um, chemotherapies and side effects yeah. and um, drugs in general and yeah one of the one of the uh the biggest kind of like oh god moments for me was you know, when I first got into the field and I was kind of hearing about chemo and, you know, chemo sucks or whatever. And then I was starting to dive into it more. And, well, this chemo drug does this and then this chemo drug does this. Mm-hmm. And then this patient can have this dose and then this patient can have this dose and they have completely different. So- and I was like, how are we ever going to get a handle on this? Mm-hmm. You know? I feel that way still um, all the time. Yeah. So and luckily we have dietitians that work with different chemos and different patients. But, yeah, I feel like things change so much that. We're so lucky to have a great team. So what is what is your day-to-day like there? Um, so what typically I do is, you know, I have patients scheduled throughout the day, um, but I also get a lot of kind of phone calls for patients that are not doing well that day because of their side effects. So um, my, myself and then we have two other dietitians, but we will see our head and neck cancer patients the very beginning of treatment. Um, sometimes even before treatment starts, if they are already maybe malnourished or losing weight, um, but we'll see them the very first week of treatment. The head and neck cancer patients are typically seven weeks of um, 
radiation and chemo um, typically once a week, but it can be once every three weeks. Um, and then we follow them at least every other week throughout their treatment. So, um, yeah, there. I mean, it can it can be pretty busy because side effects can come on like that, and then yeah. you know patients can eat one day and the next day they're having a really hard time. So let's do that. Let's go back a little bit and talk about what is head and neck cancer and what are the typical side effects that people see in relation particularly to, to eating and things like that. So we see a um, lot of um, tonsil or base of tongue um, cancers who a lot of times they don't even have you know trouble eating before they're diagnosed. Um, so they come in and they're eating pretty normally. Um, and you know, so we are educating them on like what to expect throughout their treatment. Some even get feeding tubes before treatment starts and they don't need to use them. Um, so it's a lot of education at that first visit, like what, what to expect, um, answer a lot of questions, tell them, um, you know, that how important nutrition is because some people just think it's like, I need to lose weight. This is a yeah. weight loss program. <laughs> um, so, I mean, sometimes it's just telling them like, I always say like food is medicine right now. Yeah. You're going to get these side effects. You're not going to feel like eating food's not going to taste good. It's purely going to be medicine right now. So a lot of education at the very beginning. Um, and then kind of close follow-up because things change so frequently yeah. and so quickly. Um, so the need for a feeding tube then is in the case of maybe extreme surgery where they have part of their you know, jaw removed or something like that, but also radiation effects on the swallowing muscles. Right. Talk a little so, bit about that for me. So the radiation where it's targeted, you know, it's targeted at those cancer cells, but also all the healthy cells around it. And our patients can get radiation, you know, throughout their whole neck or their mouth. Um, so they will have trouble, you know, a lot of times it's taste changes will happen, you know, early in treatment. And then there goes the appetite because if nothing tastes good. Some people say things don't taste like anything. Some people say, um, someone yesterday told me, I forget what he said, like garbage, just foods taste awful. <laughs> um, so with that, yeah. like a lot of times it's just the appetite is not there. Yeah. Um, and then kind of halfway through treatment, um, and it, everyone's so different too, so yeah. it's kind of hard to tell our patients what to expect, but um, they'll start to get, you know, mouth sores, really sore throat, mouth, um, to where, I mean, sometimes even water, can't get water down, it hurts so much. So because of that radiation, it's kind of destroying a lot of cells, like their salivary glands, they'll get really, um, they'll get dry mouth, but then they'll get really thick secretions in their mouth where, I mean, they can just, they're like silly bunnies sometimes. Yeah. So it's really hard for them to eat towards the end of treatment. Painful as well, huh? Yes, painful. Oh. And of course there are, you know, we have an awesome team. So there are medications and remedies that can kind of help throughout the process. Um, but like I'm there for, I'm the nutrition person. So um, the doctors will be like, you can't lose any weight, but here comes Anna because she'll talk to you about what yeah. what to eat or if they have a feeding tube, you know, what to put through the feeding tube. So, yeah, with that feeding tube, um, you would have, how do you determine the calories mm -hmm. and how do you determine the composition of what's in that feeding tube? Mm -hmm. So our um, 
cancer patients, we estimate them to need, you know, higher higher calorie needs than before, which is sometimes hard for them to understand because they are thinking, well, I'm not as active now. I'm tired. I go home and sleep. I can't possibly need that many calories. So it's like telling them, you know, you need more calories now. So we will estimate that they need 30 to 35 calories per kilogram of their current weight, unless they're obese. And then, I can, you know, we kind of adjust it. Um, and then, so some people like a calorie goal. Some people, like, have my fitness pal on their phone and kind of track it. Um, other people, I'm just like, try to give them a range and say, well, this is kind of what your day should should look like. Yeah. Um, with the feeding tube patients, there are formulas um, that have kind of the calories and protein and vitamins and minerals they need. So it's just kind of telling them how many cans to put in their tube, um, something like that. And that, can that be outpatient to tube as well? They can bring that home with them? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, that's the part that I really kind of loved at the beginning is – you know, they have to do this on their own at yeah. home. So <clears throat> a lot of times if they get a new feeding tube, you know, we'll make sure to see them shortly after and kind of teach them again how to use it. Um, I'll have them do it because they have to do it at home. Like yeah. this is this is their new normal yeah. right now. Um, so that's the part that I really, I like, I like helping them out and try to normalize it a little bit because it's, you know, it's just typically temporary. Yeah, um, it's got to be a huge adjustment going from, Two weeks ago, I was eating and everything tasted good. It was all good. And now I'm, I have a tube. That's right. my soul source. You don't right. get that feeling of tasting mm-hmm. things anymore. Mm-hmm. A lot of like emotional support for these yeah. patients too, which I really like. Um, just, you know, kind of being there for them. They have, obviously, they'll, they'll probably hopefully have a support system at home, but like a huge support system at the James too. Yeah. And like, you know, I try to talk them through it and help them in any way I can yeah I mean like each each cancer site seems to have you know it's unique side effects and challenges but head and neck you know for some people to get surgery on their head and neck and then deal with the challenges with eating and nutrition you're tired all the time you're cranky your mm-hmm. mouth sore I mean mm-hmm. I'd like to think I'd be no I wouldn't I'd be that pissed off all day would you know what I mean I'd be, I'd be I really bitter so there's got to be a lot of mood fluctuations as well that you're mm-hmm. you're just kind of trying to be that source of support too mm-hmm. and sometimes it is kind of a compliance issue only because I mean they're going through so much right now to try to feed themselves every two to three hours they don't want to it doesn't taste good they're just I mean it is sometimes it can be a compliance issue yeah. and again reinforcing the importance of nutrition um, because we know that you know weight loss of more than a couple pounds a week can really you know reduce their immune system and put them at risk for infection or hospitalization um, and even you know afterwards like the healing process because they all want to get better um, and get back to eating so it's just kind of telling them that too there's a light at the end of the tunnel you got to get through this type of thing so let's talk about that weight loss because it's uh it's not unique to head and neck, but it's really pronounced in head and neck in, in how devastating it can be, how quick its onset is. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, the location plays a big role, but talk about kind of how dramatic that weight loss is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it can definitely, I think I had someone this week who lost like 14 pounds in one week. That's insane. Um, yeah, and it really, because side effects just come on so quickly, um, a 
250-pound man who ate a packet of oatmeal a day for a week, I mean, he's going to yeah. lose a lot of weight. Um, so it, it definitely can be a very rapid weight loss, which is why some patients get feeding tubes beforehand. Um, but And I know, I think we kind of talked about patients beforehand, if we should tell them to kind of gain weight to yeah. get ready for it. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily tell them if they're a normal weight that they should kind of pack on the pounds now. I just really tell them, you know, be prepared, but maybe kind of pay attention to your food and higher calories if the patients are underweight before treatment. Um, I definitely will tell them, you know, try to gain some weight to get ready for this. Yeah, I mean, it's scary, you know, particularly with, with, with cancer cachexia, um, you're losing not just fat mass. There's a lot of muscle mass, a lot of muscle weakness involved there. And as, you know, just going off what I've seen, you know, 20 plus pounds across six weeks mm -hmm. and more. I mean, you're talking about not just the side effects of losing the weight. You're talking about physical physical function impairments. Uh, it's it's also challenging them because a lot of people are older. They have other comorbidities. You mm -hmm. know, when we talk about cancer, we kind of try and isolate it to, you know, disguise this type of cancer. But they could have COPD. They could be a diabetic. They could be dealing with all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. So then you put a diabetic through head and neck treatment and then try and figure out their nutrition. It's got to be a mess. Mm -hmm. Which, yeah, that's why we follow up so frequently, too, because it is, it can be really challenging. Um, and one thing that I can't, I do tell patients is that they'll lose that lean body mass first and that, you know, the fatigue is already a side effect of the treatments, but losing that muscle mass, that is going to lead to fatigue, too. Sometimes it works for people. They're like, really, my muscles? I'm going to lose those? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. yes, those are going to go first. So, um, yeah, definitely. And we have started to do the nutrition-focused physical exam um, and examining patients, their muscle loss and their fat loss throughout their body, too, and kind of measuring that throughout treatment because it can be very pronounced, like in their shoulders especially. Yeah. Um, and the patients will tell me, too, sometimes, like, my legs just don't look anything like they used to. Um, so, yeah, we do kind of monitor that throughout their treatments, too. It's crazy how such a short period of time can affect, I mean, the rest of their life, their body image, mm -hmm. their confidence, their, their <laughs> you know, their self-esteem and their physical function. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it makes sense, given how dramatic that weight loss can be, that there should or there could be some sort of buffering period where you do... You know, you're not trying to pack on the pounds, but at least increase your calories in anticipation of, because uh, you're kind of saying it takes about two weeks for those side effects to, to mm -hmm. uh, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, about um, two to three weeks. You know, with that, maybe in that two to three week period, that's a window where you kind of go, I know I'm going to lose a lot of this. Let's try and bump up the calories. Mm -hmm. uh, the other interesting thing to me, the more RDs I talk about in the trenches or talk to in the trenches who are actually working with cancer patients day to day, their overall goal, particularly in, in cases like this where cachexia is a big problem, is just get calories. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we want to be these philosophical, theoretical guys where we talk about, you know, maybe the composition should be this and the carbs, protein, the fat ratio. You know, and obviously keto is a big key uh, buzzword right now. But ultimately, we just need to keep them at their weight. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the calories come first, then maybe the composition comes after. Right, which is... It's kind of hard for me as a dietitian to say you need more butter and <laughs> yeah. fat and oil and 
sour cream and cheese, it, it's kind of, it's hard, but I just know the main goal is calories and to not lose weight. So, and uh, patients even tell me, I've never heard a dietitian say that, or, you know, this is completely opposite of what I would think I should eat. Um, but I do tell them fruits and vegetables, they're good for us, but they have the least amount of calories. And when yeah. you are having a hard time eating just even a cup of food, you want it to be high calories. So it is, I mean, it's kind of hard for for patients to, to think like that too and and say, okay, what you used to buy at the grocery, buy opposite of that now. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, it makes sense if, if, you know, an apple normally tastes good to you and then you're going through radiation and it's sore to swallow mm-hmm. and it, it tastes, and then it takes 15, 20 minutes to get through an apple. Like if you, if your pain tolerance is only 15, 20 minutes, it makes mm-hmm. sense then that you have that window to get as much calories as you right. can in. Right, right. But, and, I mean, patients tell me, too, a lot. They hear about fad diets or, I thought I should eat this when I have cancer. I thought I should eat that. Um, so, it's, I mean, it's hard for them to kind of understand that the most important thing is just to maintain your weight. Yeah. So we're, we're going to zero in on some of those diets. But overall, you know, you've been in this field about 10 years. Do you see the influence of social media and the Internet and the information that people are getting as an overall net positive or a net negative in terms of, you know, people are coming up with all these, you know, this new herb and this new drink, whatever. But overall, do you find people are, are better educated or, or is, the, is there so much misinformation that we still need to, we have a lot of work to do? I think there's a lot of misinformation. Um, and just with the population I'm working with, I mean, I'm sure other um, populations, maybe it's, it's better that people are thinking about their health more than they used to. Um, but I think when you have cancer, you have so much on your plate and you have so much stress already and then you're reading things or your family's sending you articles about yeah. something new to try. It's a lot of extra added stress when really that's not even the goal. That's not, you know, what we want is just for them to eat. The family doesn't know that they can't even tolerate the smell of food. Yeah. You know, so I think for the patients that we see during during cancer treatment it's a lot for them it's just an added stress that they don't need um, i mean given six to eight weeks for radiation it's unlikely that anything you eat will have a substantial effect on your long-term health health outcomes or so you're right you, let's just keep you where you're at you know mm-hmm. and and that seems to be RDs and oncologists and physicians have that train of thought mm-hmm. But it's it's uh, it can be people who aren't in the field and don't work day to day and see the devastating effects that that stuff looks great on paper, but real life practical in the trenches stuff it doesn't work. Right, right, exactly. And I think it's a lot of control that the patients have too. I mean, they can control what they're eating. So um, sometimes they do listen to these this information that they they read or they hear about because it's something they can control when they're yeah. in such like an uncontrolled like place in their life right now so what are the what are the most common diets you're hearing about from from patients right now so we hear a lot about the keto diets um you know a lot i don't hear a lot about diets necessarily in our clinic because they know they're not supposed to diet but um, I know there's a lot of, and I need to like study up on these too, but the um, intermittent fasting right now, um, I know even with like chemo patients, they're talking about that, but um, like Whole30, that mm-hmm. kind of thing, um, 
I'm glad that I don't get a lot of diet questions because yeah. I would, uh, you know, you're not supposed to be on a diet right now. Um, but I know we, we hear it a lot. I mean, even from staff to that work, <laughs> you know, with us. So you're not just an OD for the patients. You're like, hey, Alan, uh-huh. what should I eat? Yeah. Uh, what do you know about the keto diet? I hear that a yeah. lot. So, um, um, yeah, I mean, so obviously the, the premise, this, this is interesting because keto is huge buzzword right now and everyone's promoting it and there's a few really good people in in the field of keto and cancer who appreciate that it's not uh the theory is that cancers are really glycolytic and they feed they feed quote-unquote on sugar and so through intermittent fasting or keto you can kind of switch or at least uh, starve the tumor of its fuel maybe arrest its growth and reverse it some pretty interesting research in animal models not yet to be shown in humans. The other really important thing, and Chad Massius is a, is a really good uh, person at showing this, is that it's not this, like the metabolism, tumor metabolism is so complex based on the different type of treatment or different type of cancer you have. So you can't put this global statement that everyone should be on keto, particularly that in some instances that, keti- that keto metabolite can fuel tumor growth. So when you come back into into cancer care, um, the, the, again, it's the theory. It's like the theory is really great in animal models. But then given the issues with compliance, you talk about trying to switch someone uh, onto a ketogenic diet. You know, you've just been diagnosed with head and neck cancer. Now we want you to switch to this high fat diet, which is completely contrary to anything you've ever done your whole life because fat has been demonized. And you have to have butter and bacon all the time and cheese and sour cream. Um, you know, that compliance, along with side effects of radiation, it just doesn't seem feasible. So we need to get better at kind of talking about the the art and application of that science. And who who is it right for? Because mm-hmm. you know? I do think it could be right for certain patients um, getting cancer treatment. Um, and I mean, maybe even for head and neck cancer patients down the road, it could be. I think it's... We're really going to have to follow these patients closely to make sure they don't lose weight. Um, but yeah, I know there's a lot of research going on, um, which is exciting. Um, but right now, I'm just all about calories, and it's hard enough just eating like any kind of food that they want and maintaining their weight. So, yeah. so how does your how does your recommendations change once you switch into that survivorship? They've gotten through radiation; they're starting to get their taste back and all that stuff. How then does your your counseling or your your consultations go mm-hmm. um we actually have we're actually two dietitians in james care for life that have so many programs um a, around plant-based eating um not like vegan or vegetarian just a lot of plants in your diet so um you know if a patient comes to me asking for that i'll give them kind of the basics but i will also tell them about all the programs we have um at the james and with james care for life um but, I, you know, a lot of times they even want still a calorie goal or something, so I can go over that with them. But I do kind of send them to different different programs and things. So do you think, I mean, the James is unique and that has those, I mean, how many programs does it have for survivors that they can go and get regular education? And uh, what, I mean, what do you think the biggest component is of their survivorship care in, in is it the re-education of, of how to eat and, and what to eat? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, 
I actually help facilitate the head and neck support group, which a lot of our patients, I mean, not a lot, but some will come to after treatment, which is in itself a good group because even years later, these patients are having a hard time eating still. Um, So for me, I feel like my group is just still trying to get them to just eat normal foods. Um, But I like that part of it because I do get to see patients come afterwards who are getting off trying to get off of the feeding tube or just had it you know just had it pulled and trying to eat normal foods kind of again um so yeah I think having that group and being able to see them after treatment is really good because they struggle with these things for I mean these side effects for years yeah so it's you know with the radiation really pronounced side effects immediately they still have trouble with swallowing and things like that can can those tissues be repaired or is there some sort of damage there are some sort of damage kind of and it can be forever I mean things just like dry mouth a lot of times Um, I think a lot of times it's just fear with eating especially within that maybe first year Um, you know fear of like choking or things like that Um, but I think for them too food takes on a whole new meaning at that point too Um, and they're in like uh, you know within a year I don't think they're they would be in in the frame of mind to try to eat more plant foods just yet, but maybe after that. But there are things that can linger for their whole lives. So, the the things we take for granted in terms of just being able to swallow and taste food, mm-hmm. and you know, you get a diagnosis like this and you go through treatment and have the fear of choking as an adult for. Mm-hmm. I do. I think about that so often. <laughs> it's like when I think I'm having a bad day or something, I just. Like, the patients kind of bring me back down. Yeah. It's like, okay, I mean, think about not being able to eat your lunch within two hours. I mean, they, yeah, it's, I, I just can't imagine. So, the, it does take them that kind of really, I mean, two to three hour window to, to get food down sometimes? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, just had a patient this week, and I can't remember if he said it was oatmeal. It took him an hour to eat. Um, oh. Just with pain and just trying to get food down. And as... You know, as they lose weight, they lose muscles. I mean, even in their swallowing, they're swallowing muscles too. So, I mean, that takes, sometimes they have to go to therapy for that too afterwards. So it just takes them a long time. And that's oatmeal. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can so basically meal. drink oatmeal, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Um, are, there, are there specific foods that you find people either find more palatable or easier to eat? That, that you kind of find yourself recommending a lot? Mm-hmm. A lot of um, bland things that you can just add, you know, like soups, creamy soups, you can add extra butter to. That's pretty bland. Nothing spicy, um, nothing acidic, anything like that. Um, a lot of just like mashed potatoes that you can add butter to or um, oatmeal, cream of wheat, things like that. Just kind of plain foods that you can kind of add calories to so they're also getting or a lot of your patients are also getting chemo at the same time mm-hmm. so how does that what's that weekly schedule look like mm-hmm. and you know they're getting infused once a week and then they see you in radong for four or five times a week so yeah they see they get radiation five days a week and normally chemo one of those days um so these yeah these patients sometimes they're staying at a hotel locally during their treatment or at least during the week and sometimes going home on the weekends. Um, but it's their whole life, you know, and that's another thing, trying to get them to eat a certain way when they're at a hotel or they're at appointments all day long 
um, it can be really tricky and it's just it's kind of just another stressor for them too so you know I feel bad when I'm saying you need 2800 calories (laughs) and they're just you know they're struggling with just trying to get to appointments and and things during the day I mean that's a it's a huge point when I mean people are lucky enough to live in Columbus where they have access but you've got people come from rural Ohio rural Midwest coming two three hours here and that's a really good picture of how disruptive I mean you imagine you're you're a full-time worker with with a family and kids Mm -hmm. and you then have to in the blink of an eye turn around get surgery Mm -hmm. on your face Mm -hmm. and then get turn up to hospital appointments every day Mm -hmm. every single day for some sort of treatment and then you've got chemo on top of that I can't imagine how 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 do you just switch gears and and focus on all that stuff and how do you keep the rest of your life intact you know it's going to be such a big challenge right and we have patients that are in their 20s sometimes in their teens um 30s that have families that have full-time jobs so yeah it's it's got to be just so challenging um, You've got patients in their teens. Mm-hmm. Wow. How? What's the? What's the reason for for a head and neck diagnosis so young? Or is that different cancers that you're seeing in their teens? They're the ones that we've seen are nasopharyngeal type of cancers, a late teens, 16, 17, 18, um, which is a whole different ball game when you're trying to counsel a, like a, a teenager. Yeah, right. Um, but. I think no matter who it is, it's just still trying to get them to understand the importance of nutrition yeah. and maintaining their weight. As one of our research products, we do a lot of these diet and exercise interventions. and We do these kind of group-mediated um, counseling sessions. So basically, after an exercise session, you have a little chat, and t- everyone talks about the challenges. And, and I was sitting in there yesterday thinking, these are adults who... You know, for the most part, competent and they know what they're doing, um, and they're open to change of behavior, and they're open to implementing different strategies. And I was kind of trying to relate that back to: imagine you've got a 15, 16 year old kid who, you know, when I was 16, I was bouncing off the walls. I didn't care about nutrition. I was shoving everything into my mouth. To then turn around and go, well, you're not in high school anymore, mm-hmm. or, or your your schedule is disrupted. You know, you've you've this diagnosis you got to deal with, and now we're going to change what you eat. You've I'm sure that you come across kind of some sort of resentment and, and just anger and frustration as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with really, you know, any any age. Um, so, yeah, like you said, like you think of like your day-to-day, or it's just so complex and every patient is so different. And um, some are young, some are old, some, some patients just come from a different socioeconomic status too. So some don't even have like good quality food to eat at home. Um, which is hard because, like you said, I mean, some patients are coming from rural areas. Some are coming from even, like, Kentucky, West Virginia. I mean, some people don't have the food. So for a a long time, um, I, you know, like, started working and didn't even really think about that. And I remember I had a patient who had lost weight before they were diagnosed, counseled him, told him what to eat, and then didn't realize, I think maybe the social worker ended up telling me, that he didn't have food to eat at home. That's why he lost the weight. And so from then on, I mean, I I really try to kind of say, do you have like, do you have this at home to eat? Um, so there's that whole 
a whole, you it's know. It's a big wake up call, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it kind of alludes to, we talk about this in airfield, I mean, a lot of people who participate in these research studies tend to be, uh, you know, higher socioeconomic status, more affluent, generally. I mean, the majority of people in, in our field in the research are, you know, white Americans and who are interested in exercise. So then you take that back to bringing that out to West Virginia, you know what I mean? And you've got someone from lower SES and you've got someone who is a coal worker, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like the, these things are things that, that research doesn't capture and completely different challenges in trying to actually implement this. So with the with the chemo on top of radiation, do you see then more fluctuations? You know, a couple of days after chemo, a lot of nausea and fatigue and vomiting. Um, does that then play a role? You see those kind of day-to-day fluctuations and how you prescribe your nutrition or at least count? Absolutely, yes. And sometimes they give them medications with their chemo where, you know, maybe for a couple of days they feel fine. Um, but by the weekend, they're, I mean, nauseated, vomiting. So... Yeah, definitely. You know, one I could have seen them earlier in the week and told them to do this, and then it changes because they can't really keep foods down. At the, you know, so definitely, it's it's a challenge. Any any persistent, I suppose, myths or any and the the population we work with, they they uh, there's a lot of excitement in like this this article said this or my family sent me this article and and what do you think about this? Do you see any common kind of myths coming up that you're constantly kind of trying to report or dispel? I mean, I think we hear a lot about does sugar feed cancer and a lot of patients have concerns about, oh, should I be on this supplement or this herb or I read this, kind of like we talked about. Um, So I just really try to bring them back to, okay, this is what we know and this is what we know is important right now. Um, Some supplements... Um, you know, they, they shouldn't take during treatment. So a lot of that is kind of educating on, on that. Um, but just bringing them back to, okay, the most important thing is that you maintain your weight. Yeah. You know, that is the most important thing because, you, you know, you can't be admitted to the hospital with malnutrition. And so, you know, and typically they do, they listen. If someone wants to try some kind of diet, um, you know, I, I'll tell them if they're persistent, just you know, you can try that as long as you're maintaining your weight. Yeah. What are, you mentioned supplements that they can't take during treatment. What are they that come off the top of your head? We typically tell them, you know, no antioxidants really. I know they've definitely studied fish oil and chemo, so I, you know, tell patients not to take fish oil. Um, so Why is I, that? Um, I don't, there are just some studies that say it interferes with the chemo right. even. Um, I know even... One of the dietitians said eating fish the night before your chemo. Really? Um, oh. So, and a lot of things are still studied yeah. too. So, you know, if they're taking a multivitamin, I tell them that's okay. Um, but if it were me, I would try not to take anything that you that may interact or interfere with yeah. your chemo or your radiation. How does how does it differ to where you were before in terms of how you're valued as an RD? how integral you are maybe at, at the James versus where you were before um, and just kind of how that looks in terms of, of appreciation for the role of a nutritionist in this or a mm-hmm. dietitian in this area. Um, yeah, because I, th- I feel like as dietitians, like we always kind of thought 
the doctors didn't really appreciate us or something or you know when I first kind of started I kind of felt like I had to like really have a voice in my job and that really that that's kind of anywhere um, like you want the doctor to hear you like no this is what I want um, but at you know where I am now the doctors are so supportive um, they're really all amazing I mean I'm just part of their team um, and they say you have to see Anna you have to see her during your treatment um, so I mean it's it's a great place to work because I just feel good about it the patients really value me too um, the doctors the staff obviously does how does how does compensation work how is this on the patients or is it insurance billable or how does that work we actually um, don't bill our patients very um, cool. Yeah, we, we used to, um, but, I mean, for example, Medicare, they don't pay to see a dietitian, um, and we have a lot of Medicare patients that need to be seen. So right now, we are not billing our patients. Um, you know, we may eventually kind of be tacked on to maybe the physician's um, bill or something like that, yeah. but right now, right now we're not. So patients don't have to worry about being charged to see Which is huge. Us. Mm-hmm. Huge, given how profound the impact nutrition can have on your treatment-related outcomes. And then, you know, down the line, your overall health, to be able to get that sort of counseling and support day-to-day without worrying about tacking on an extra bill is massive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, anything, do you think, I mean, looking at the overall framework of what you've got going on, James, if you were to go off to a different hospital, um, would you would you change the way pathways work or the collaborations work or anything you'd like to see kind of the standard of care quote unquote improved i mean i think the james we are so large that um i mean i think we're doing a good job i mean i think we could even have we could even have more dietitians i mean we could see these patients even more frequently but um i think right now we're we're doing a great job i don't know if you were to go to a different hospital, um, you know, what their kind of ratio is. Like, I, w- I would love one day to say, you know, maybe for every head and neck cancer patient getting treatment, we need this many dietitians. Yeah, I would yeah. love that. And maybe one, you know, one day we, we might have that. But we're definitely kind of tracking. Leading and away, yeah. Yeah. You know. How many patients do you see a day? Um, I can see anywhere from five to... 12 it just depends yeah um you know some days are busier than others um i think we have probably 60 to 70 maybe head and neck patients on treatment at one time do you uh do you have a specific window that you have to get in and get out or is it more open where you just kind of you know have a chat and when that ends you're good to go so what I do a lot of times is we have different, like we have consult rooms on, and radiation that I can take patients. If I know it's going to be a longer conversation, sometimes it's an hour long. Other times it's just a brief visit to chemo um, or kind of a lot of times I'll go in with the doctor to see the patients. That way I can hear exactly what they're saying and I can watch the doctor look in their mouth and look in with them, you know. So, um, yeah, it kind of just depends where and when I see the patients. As you're talking there, I mean, you're at the James walking around to to all these different wards, improving the lives of people. That's really, really powerful. I, as mean, you're, I, as you're I talking hope. I <laughs> it is. It is nice after they're finished with treatment, and when you see them come to clinic and they just give you like a big hug. You know, thank you so much for all you did to help. And I mean, it's everyone. We all work as a team. 
Um, but it's, I love that part of my job, getting to see them, patients come back after treatment and eating again and, yeah. you know, working and exercising. Yeah. And yeah, it's the best part of my job. So one last thing, what, in terms of the weight loss, um, what do you think, it, without, without we talk about exercise, without that, how do you see that weight rate, weight regain happen after treatment? Does it, does it happen quickly? Is it more slow? It's pretty slow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I just had a patient who was only a month out of treatment and he was still losing weight and he's asking how many calories um, do I need to kind of maintain my weight or maybe lose a little. And I'm like, you need, you still are in this healing process, you know? So I think, I mean, it takes them a year, if not more, to finally kind of get back to maybe eating normally and maybe just not trying to lose any more weight. That's, I mean, you'll hear this from patient survivors all the time and, and they've gone through treatment and, you know, they look, you know, people will say, you know, you've finished treatment, whereas a year, two, five years out, you can still be dealing with these complications that people don't see, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's a big challenge as well and, and just kind of the mental side of, of dealing with those side effects and, and having people almost discount them because you're so far out from mm-hmm. treatment. Mm-hmm. I know at the support group, they all talk about that a lot. And just the fact that it's like cancer is with you forever. Like it's part of you. And a lot of people don't know it, don't understand it. So they like to, you know, be around other people that have had that same type of cancer. But yeah, it's their it's their life. Yeah. So. Well, listen, it was a fascinating insight into what you do. Uh, I really commend you for what you do. I think, you know, you know, as you talked about, just to see how how valued nutrition is in this, particularly in this population, is really cool for me. And I mean, the goal is to have exercise catch up, but uh, I really appreciate you stopping by and I really appreciate you chatting about it. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no problem. <laughs>